I'm going to go ahead and read from Acts chapter 3. Uh, it is on page 911 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. So if you'd go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3 to read together, we're going to be in verses 11 through 26 together. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me pray just one more time. Father, having now read your word, would your spirit speak? Would we be dependent on what you have given to us and that you would help us to understand and know you this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you, I know what you're thinking. You are thinking that it's a little bit odd that the youth pastor is preaching two weeks in a row. And so let me just go ahead and rest uh, some of your troubled hearts at ease. This is not a takeover. This is the beginning of spring break. And the person with the newborn baby when the preaching calendar was being set up was definitely not going to be traveling the first weekend of most of the spring breaks for our school. Uh, it's not a takeover. Uh, all is well. Uh, you will not have me again next week. No three weeks in a row for the youth pastor. Uh, when Jillian and I moved to Opelika and we got our new house, uh, one of the things that I was not expecting 
when we became homeowners was the onslaught of door-to-door salesmen that started coming to the door. Because they, knowing that we had just moved into this new house, had a bunch of things that they needed me to know I really needed these things to be a successful homeowner. As it turns out, there are multiple different security systems that are all the top-rated security systems. I don't know if they're using different mechanisms of tallying that, but there's those. There's uh, lawn care companies that continue to try to say, hey, those weeds look real bad, man. You should treat those things. We can do that for you. Uh, All sorts of people coming to the door. The most interesting one for me was when one of the pest control companies came and knocked on my door. I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go again. And they're like, hey, we're actually here to remove some of the termite protection. I was like, remove? That's, that's new. You're usually here to try to get me to get something. I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the payments have defaulted, and so we're here to get the termite bait back. And I was like, well, that makes sense because the person who used to live here does not live here anymore. I don't really want you to take away the termite protection. That sounds important. Like, okay, well, you can either pay us right now or we're going to take it. Now, an impersonal, if you're in sales, impersonal ultimatums aren't usually a great way of making people trust you. (laughs) But what did help me to learn that I did need this protection from termites, not only are termites terrible, but as I talked with my dad and with friends who owned homes and people that I actually trusted and had personal relationships with, were like, no, you, you really need to bite the bullet. You don't want termites in your home. It was through the personal touch, it was through the people that I knew that I began to have faith in termite protection, not the salesperson who was going to rip it away from me unless I gave them money. Uh, this is not an ad for termite protection, by the way. Uh, this is just to say... When we look at people, rather than impersonal forces, or ideas, or facts, it's people, people who we love, who love us. That is where we often find the greatest comfort, the greatest strength of faith. If last week we looked at this lame beggar being healed, this picture of God's amazing grace, just because God wanted to heal him out of his pure grace and love, Peter and John help somebody walk who had never walked for his 40 years of life. It was a picture of God's grace. This week, Peter is going to give us a picture of what faith looks like. So the actual healing itself was this amazing picture of what grace looks like. Peter here is going to call us to faith. This is someone who walked with Jesus for three years. He would know what faith looks like. And so as we look at this call to faith in Acts chapter 3, we'll get to see Peter's point pretty clearly. That faith, at its core, is about trusting Jesus himself, the person. Not about facts of Jesus, not about an impersonal force called Jesus. (laughs) A living person, Jesus Christ. That is the core of our faith. So let's go ahead and look at verses 11 through 16 as Peter's explaining this miracle that he just did. In these verses before that we looked at last week, this man who was walking, Peter then turns around and he begins to explain it. And his main point, and here's the first point, uh, is that faith looks like trusting in Jesus, not in Jesus' gifts. It's really easy to switch from trusting in Jesus to trusting in the things that we get from Jesus. To put our hope or our love in the benefits or the gifts of Jesus. 
And we end up wanting those things more than we want the person. I want you to imagine that you're one of the people in the crowd in the temple these thousands of years ago. You are used to seeing a man who can't walk, sitting on the gate of the temple, begging for money, if you are under the age of 40, for your entire life. And suddenly he's jumping around in the temple. Suddenly he's praising God, and he can't stop hugging these two guys who have just healed him. And so, like everybody else, you are like, I kind of want to know what happened there. And so this crowd begins to form around Peter, uh, and then Peter looks up and he's like, here's the opportunity. This is a great natural opportunity to begin to talk about the gospel. Um, Probably, uh, these people just kind of wanted in on the miracle. Like, if these two guys can heal somebody's legs, then you're probably like, do I need to, like, get close to you? Like, how do I get in on those redeemed ankles. That's something that I would really like. But Peter doesn't go there. He actually doesn't talk about himself. In verse 12, he explicitly says, why are you so surprised? Why do you wonder at this? Why are you staring at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Although Peter had gained the attention of a crowd, up to 2,000 people if we just go by the numbers later in chapter 4. Peter takes all of this attention and he shifts it away from himself. And then in verse 13, he throws another curveball. Not only is he throwing it away from himself, he's not putting it where we would expect. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. And if you're in the crowd, you're expecting to say, His servant, this lame beggar who he healed, he glorified him. That's not what Peter says. Even though they're looking at the, the lame beggar who was healed, Peter doesn't look at himself. He doesn't even look at the miracle, the gift of Jesus. Peter says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. For Peter, the most important thing for our faith is to be centered on Jesus, the person, not on the people who tell us about Jesus. Not on the things that we get from Jesus. Jesus. Now, I don't like using hyperbole for the sake of shock value, so I've tried to work this through so that it wouldn't sound like the youth pastor making shock value. Uh, And so I really mean what I'm about to say. And follow me all the way through. At the center of the gospel, the center of what our church is about, the center of what Christianity is about, the center of what your life is to be about is Jesus himself. You're probably following me there. It's about Christ and him crucified. But that means the center of what we are about is not overcoming sin or living the Christian life well. The center of what our sermons are supposed to be about or the way we build our lives are not on any of the benefits that Jesus offers. Although those are important things and there are benefits. The center of what the Bible is about is not even about how to have strong faith. The center is the strong Savior. Peter's sermon is not about how to be healed by having a really strong faith. It's about how the name of Jesus made someone well. 
It's about how the person of Jesus is alive. He died but rose from the dead, and God has vindicated him, proving that he is the holy and righteous one, proving that he is the author of life by giving life again to a man who'd never been able to walk. Now, I would love to have conversations with anybody about overcoming sin in the Christian life and how to grow our faith. Those are all things the Bible talks about, but they're not the most important thing. If at the core of your personal Christianity is overcoming sin or living the Christian life in a particular way, when you fall into sin, you're going to fall into a crisis of faith because you've gone against your very core. If the center of your faith instead is Jesus himself, then the center of your faith when you fall into sin is going to lead you to a Savior who loves you and who died for you. I grew up in the middle of purity culture in the church. It had a tendency to shift the core of Christianity, not all the time, but sometimes, uh, to sexual purity, which is a really important thing. But if that's at the core of what our Christianity is, I know lots of people my age who love someone who's a deep, a close friend or a family member who comes out to them. And suddenly they're struck with how that clashes with their Christianity about what sexual purity is supposed to look like. But I still love this person. And people begin to deconstruct and pull apart and remove their faith. But if we're trusting in Jesus himself and we're standing where Jesus stands, then he alone allows us to be centered on a God who came not for the righteous but for sinners, yet who also came not to abolish the law but to uphold all of it. To stand with Jesus at the core so that all of those really important things flow from Jesus and don't allow us to define Jesus. Let me give you one more. It is really easy to slip into thinking that our, ha- that our faith, that f- what faith looks like, is faith that we have been saved. Like looking at the past, at what we have decided already. But when doubts hit, you hear a really interesting counterargument to Christianity. And there are many intellectual, thoughtful ones out there. Or when you just are going through a dry season and you have some emotional doubts. Doubts, by the way, allow you to consider these things and go to Jesus and strengthen our faith. They're not always bad. But if we're trusting in a decision that we made in the past, we're not going to hold up. But if instead we're trusting in the person of Jesus himself, then we're trusting that a person is going to hold on to us. Even if we're struggling even if we're just only holding on with a pinky finger, we can look and we can see that he still has us completely. Because it's Jesus who saves us through faith, not a past decision that we made that saves us. The core of our faith must be the person of Jesus, not in the gifts that we get from him, whether intellectual and theological or emotional. Jesus is at the core. And all of those things, overcoming sin and living the Christian life, even having a strong faith, again, really important things. The Bible talks about them. But we need to go from Jesus into those things. 
We need to let Jesus be at the core and let all of those things be surrounding him. That he would be the core defining feature of our faith. The reformers put it this way. They would say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What's most important is to know Jesus himself. Now Peter shifts from looking at Jesus to shifting into talking about how to put legs on that faith. Reformers did that too, to use that language. They say, though we're saved through faith alone, a saving faith is never alone. We have a living and an active faith. There are ways that we live in accordance with faith. And so Peter, in verses 17 to 26, the second half of our passage, switches to talking about how Jesus calls us into repentance. That if we're looking at Jesus and he's at the core of who we are, that means all of the other things of our life are going to get shifted around because he's going to push them around. Because as we're defining our life and everything else, beginning with Jesus, well then we're going to run into some things that are contradictory to him. So the second point, if you're a note taker, is that faith looks like trusting Jesus so much that we're going to turn away from ourselves and turn towards him in every part of our life. Right? Faith looks like sometimes uncomfortable repentance. The main thrust of Peter's call to faith or call to repentance is in verses 19 to 20. I'm going to read them again. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Once again, imagine that you're in the crowd. This would be a little bit awkward. Just moments ago, Peter just accused you, person in the crowd, of denying Jesus, of giving him up to be killed and ultimately of killing him. And now Peter is turning around and saying, the very person that you sentenced to crucifixion is your hope if you would like to have life. The very person that you've offended and sinned against and killed, actually God vindicated him. He's alive and he's the author of life. And if you would like to have life, you have to go to the person that you sentenced to death. That would be uncomfortable, just a little bit. It's, I mean, it's likely that some of the people in the temple were there and actually cried out, crucify him, months before. It's possible that some of the people in the temple that day had followed Jesus and watched him be crucified. Regardless, they would have had, at this time in Jewish culture, they had a very strong communal identity. So Peter's accusation is landing because they would have understood that as the Jewish people of God, as representatives of that, they all take part in what uh, the Jewish people do. And so they would have all felt the force of Peter saying, you killed Jesus, now you have to turn to Jesus. You have sinned against him, but he's your only hope. He's the only source of life. And I love that he uh, doesn't pull his punches because he's showing us what true repentance looks like. 
as Christians, if we have faith in Jesus, that means every single day we have to look at the ways we have offended him, sinning against him. Not just generally, but we have to look, we're called to look specifically at the things that we've done each and every day to confess them to him and then turn back to the very God that we've sinned against and ask him for forgiveness. Psalm 51, David is writing about how he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. But he says in that psalm, uh, against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning every single sin that you do, every way you've offended other people, you've ultimately offended the Lord as well. Actually, primarily. So as you ask, have to ask for forgiveness from others when you've hurt them, you also have to go to the Lord. To repent to God in order to have our sins blotted out by God. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller puts it really helpfully this way. I'm going to read an excerpt. Tim Keller says, In Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. Jesus calls all of us to repentance. And that means we can't just ignore our sins. We can't pretend they never happened. Forgive and forget doesn't usually work in human-to-human relationships, and so it's not going to work in our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we take the grace of Jesus and we say, because you promised to be gracious, I'm just going to trust that you've forgiven me. I don't want to think about what I did. Lord, I just want to move on. But actually, he calls you to look at your mistakes and your sins, to confess them, and to work through your sins, handing them over to him in order to experience that forgiveness. Right? If we're just ignoring our sins and trusting that we're going to be forgiven, that's presuming, not trusting. Jesus calls us to repentance as a mechanism for deepening our faith. Because it's through repentance and looking at our ugly that we actually see how deep his love goes and how full his love is. It's through uncomfortable repentance that allows us to see when we put other things at the center instead of Jesus. We can repent of those things and turn away from them and ask the Lord uh, to rebuild our hearts and our lives that he would be at the core. It's through uncomfortable repentance that we see his love in incredible ways because it's through naming our sins and actually remembering his promises of the gospel that we grow more and more in love with him and experience his love in the first place. Confessing our sins is always going to be uncomfortable because we're not following a formula and we're not reciting a mantra. We are trusting a person. A person that we have sinned against. And yet a person who says, I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in your weakness. Take, receive, enjoy. Forgiveness comes all the time, but we get to experience it through repentance, and that is going to put some legs on our faith.
It always will. Which is why I think verse 26 at the very end of this passage is a really, really comforting conclusion and to Peter's sermon. And I'll also conclude with just a short note on this verse. After calling us to repentance and reminding us how uncomfortable it is to turn to the very God that we sin against, he reminds us of who God is, the character of the Jesus that we're trusting in. Right, all of this Moses and prophets and covenant language is driving at one point. If God was gracious then, God will be gracious now. And in verse 26, he says, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first. Jesus comes back for us lousy sinners. And he sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. At the end of the day, in our repentance, we always receive this amazing, gracious promise from Jesus. That the Jesus that we're trusting in, who we're seeking to put at the core of our lives, he's gracious. And he holds on to us when we let go of him. And as we're trusting in him, we're trusting in someone who has come to be a blessing, to redeem, and to pour out grace. That is the Jesus at our core. That's the Jesus we're trusting in. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be glorified and magnified in our hearts, in this church? through our singing and our prayers. Would you increase and would we decrease? Jesus, we need you more than we need anything else. And would you help us to trust that if we have you, we have everything we need. Would you help us to center ourselves and focus on you because you are beautiful and lovely. And would we understand the grace that you freely pour out so abundantly? Lord, as we continue our worship, as we continue to sing and confess our sins and confess our faith, would everything we do be glorifying you, Jesus, and instilling a deeper and deeper love for you, our person. We pray this all in your name. Amen.